This morning we're going to consider Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel chapter 2. It will be seen that the king of Babylon had a recurring dream that troubled him and woke him up. He consulted his team of wise men and astrologers and they said that they were unable to interpret the dream unless the king told them what it was that he dreamt. The king then gave orders for all the wise men in his kingdom to be put to death. It was only when the executioner came to the home of Daniel to kill him and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, that they found out about the king's dream. They Presumably they weren't there with the other wise men when the king asked them to tell him what it was he dreamt and give the interpretation. Daniel managed to secure from the king a bit of extra time during which he and his friends prayed and God revealed to him both the dream and the meaning of it. First of all, we can consider the first 13 verses of chapter 2, which are about King Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 2 starts with an apparent inconsistency, or dare I say it, it starts with an apparent contradiction in that King Nebuchadnezzar is said to be in the second year of his reign, according to verse 1. And then later on in chapter 2, the, the, chapter, uh, the king speaks to Daniel, who by this time had graduated with his three friends after three years of studying the Babylonian language and literature which commenced during Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Three years of study commenced during Nebuchadnezzar's reign and yet we're told here in chapter 2 verse 1 that it was in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and so on. The only reason I mention this is because there are those who have no interest in God, they've got no interest in the Saviour, they've got no interest in the Word of God other than to point out apparent contradictions which they have heard from other sceptics or they have found out from the, for themselves on Google searches. Invariably, they bring up those apparent contradictions as nothing more than a diversion in order to avoid hearing about repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. If ever you, as a Christian, have a conversation with someone who throws an apparent contradiction grenade at you, well, if you're able to give an answer, all well and good. But if not, so be it. And it's not as if your ignorance on that particular matter validates that apparent contradiction. Usually the answer is something very straightforward. For example, in the case of verse 1 here in chapter 2. It is widely accepted that before Nebuchadnezzar's enthronement as king of Babylon, he was already vice-regent. He was already acting as a king for his elderly and infirm father. With that out of the way, we'll move on to the dreams and the rest of the chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams that troubled him so much 
that they woke him up. Consequently, he summoned his astrologers and his wise men, whose job it was, amongst other things, to interpret dreams. They said to the king that they needed to know what it was that he dreamt in order to give him the explanation or the interpretation of the dream. According to the King James Version, the king then said to his wise men, the thing is gone for me, which means I've forgotten my dream. However, what we have in verse 5 is a translation from the Aramaic language and apparently it can also be translated, my decision is firm or the command is gone forth from me which you may have if you have got a version of the Bible that is not the King James Version. And if that's the case, if it is something along those lines, my decision is firm or the command is gone forth for me, what he was in effect saying was, don't bother trying to change my mind, tell me the dream, give me the interpretation of it, or you will be cut up into little pieces. Speaking as one who forgets most things, especially my dreams, I nevertheless think it's unlikely that King Nebuchadnezzar really had forgotten a recurring nightmare that was so bad that it woke him up. Therefore, if he did say, the thing is gone from me, or I've forgotten it, perhaps he just simply wasn't prepared to tell his wise men what the dream was. Maybe he did say, don't bother trying to change my mind, tell me the dream and give me the interpretation or I'll cut you up into little pieces. Either way, the king wasn't going to tell them what his dream was, whether he'd forgot, really had forgotten it or the other interpretation, the thing is, um, my decision is final. They were not going to be told what that dream was. They wanted to know what the dream was so that they could go away and concoct some kind of story that would fit the dream. Because who in this world, as we shall see, who can give the interpretation of a dream without knowing what the dream is? Certainly not those magicians and, uh, and astrologers and wise men. No one can. The king wasn't daft. He would not allow that to happen. He would not allow those men to go away and concoct some explanation for the dream. And, and we can see that to be the case. Let's have a look at verse 9 there, where the king says, But if ye will not make known unto me the dream... There is but one decree for you, for ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me. He knows they're a bunch of liars. Till the time be changed. Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that ye can show me the interpretation of it. He may have been a lot of things, but he wasn't stupid. If someone gave you an interpretation of a dream that you had without also telling you what it was that you dreamt, you'd have every reason to entertain doubts about the their interpretation. They don't know what it is I've dreamt. They've given me an explanation. How can that be? 
you'd, you'd be right to think they've made it up. Telling you what the dream was would be important in that it would serve to authenticate the interpretation that they give you. And with that in mind, details of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he has achieved for hell-deserving sinners by his own sinful life, his sacrificial death and his resurrection from the dead. They're all recorded in the Bible along with details of miracles that he performed, miracles that were seen by many, many people, miracles that people benefited from, such as people being raised from the dead, people being given their sight. And we all know that miracle where the multitude uh, of people were fed with just five loaves of bread and two small fishes. These miracles were seen by many, many people and those miracles served to confirm that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the promised Christ, the one who was promised in the Old Testament and then finally who came into the world 2,000 years ago. As it is written at the end of John's Gospel in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, and many other signs or miracles truly did Jesus in the presence of of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So we have the testimony in the Bible of the Lord Jesus Christ being the Son of God who came down from heaven to save sinners through a a perfectly sinless life a life of obedience, that obedience being unto the death of the cross. That is all recorded for us in the Bible. Additionally, we have his miracles recorded in the Bible. Miracles that were seen by many, many people. Therefore, there's no excuse not to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as your Saviour from sin. If there's someone in here today who has not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the time has come for you to believe. He came into this world, he performed the miracles that confirmed that he is the promised Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Coming back to Daniel chapter 2, In verses 11 through to 13, there was an admission from the astrologers that only the gods were able to do as the king had asked of them. And true to his word, the king gave orders for the destruction of all the wise men of Babylon, including Daniel, the Hebrew, and his three companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Well, we'll now turn our attention to Daniel and his friends. They received a visit from the king's captain and executioner, Arioch, since they too were fully qualified wise men, as can be seen in chapter 1 and verse 20, where it is written, And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, 
that's Daniel and his three companions, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. So that meant that Daniel and his companions were for the chop as well, as a result of this royal edict to kill all the wise men because they're a bunch of frauds and liars and they can't tell him his dream and and, and the interpretation thereof. In verse 15, Daniel inquired of Arioch, the the executioner, why why it was that all the wise men had to be destroyed. And Arioch explained things to him. Again, presumably, Daniel and his three friends, they hadn't been in on the uh, previous meeting when the king had asked them or told them to tell him what he dreamt and give the explanation. Daniel hadn't been there. So Arioch explained things to Daniel and his friends. Daniel went to his house where he and his three friends did the best thing that they could do. They prayed to God who knows all things, including dreams and nightmares. It's not a thought, isn't it, that God, the, the very dreams that you have, God puts them in there and it, you can't hide anything from God. He knows your dreams. Everything. He knows every little thought that you have. Nothing is hidden from God. Nothing whatsoever. Do not imagine that Daniel simply walked into the palace and had an audience with the king. Ariok would no doubt have made, had to make the arrangements. And bearing in mind that the king was in a foul mood anyway, Ariok, who had simply been tasked with the killing the wise men, was putting his own neck on the line, probably quite literally, when it might have been much safer for him simply to carry out the king's orders to, to kill the wise men. But he didn't. He listened to Daniel he, when Daniel uh, wanted to see the king and, and get a bit of extra time. Ariok actually entertained that and um, somehow or other, Daniel managed to get that extra time in which to pray to God. Perhaps you can already see the providence of God guiding events. The Lord had had a work prepared for Daniel and for his three companions to do in that ungodly kingdom. And that was not about to be cut short because Arioch had come to slay or to kill Daniel and uh, the the three the, his three companions in verse 18 Daniel and the others prayed to the God of heaven concerning the king's dream recognizing that it is only God who is able to make known someone's dreams in this case dreams about the rise and fall of various empires in the years to come as we shall soon see the false gods of the Babylonians the magicians and the astrologers were not able to, to do that. They were not able to, to reveal the dream and the interpretation of it. Neither can crystal balls, nor tea leaves in a cup, nor the reading of a palm of a hand do it either. Yet ridiculously, there are still people to this day who won't even leave their homes until they've consulted with the astrologers. 
instead of praying to God each morning, committing all each new day to God, what do they do? They read the nonsense that is given under their star sign. And they won't even dare to leave their homes until they've seen what the stars say. In verse 19, God revealed the dream to Daniel and his friends and he gave them the interpretation of that dream whereupon they praised God for revealing deep and secret things to them and we see that all the way from verse 20 through to verse 23. Those four godly men praising God, the only true God, the revealer of deep secret things. In chapter, uh, rather in verse 24 through to 28, Daniel and the king's executioner, Ariok, entered into the presence of King Nebuchadnezzar again. First of all, Ariok blew his own trumpet when he said to the king, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. Daniel could have blown his own trumpet, just like Ariok blew his own trumpet. I have done this, says Ariok. Daniel could have said, I will tell you what the dream is, O king. I will give you the interpretation. But he didn't do that. Instead, he made it very clear to that pagan king that God in heaven had revealed the secrets to him. As such, he seized on an opportunity to proclaim the only true God and to give glory to God. May it be your heart's desire, dear Christian, to proclaim and to exalt the only true God in this pagan land for for revealing his Son in your heart and in your mind. We've seen this morning that only God knows what the future holds. In fact, He holds the future in his mighty hands. Therefore, if you want to know about future events, the place to look is in the word of God. Isn't that amazing? We do have something, as I say, crystal balls, waste of time, astrologers, a waste of time. The so-called wise men, a waste of time. But I'm, I'm looking at what does Uh, give details of future events. The Bible. We've got it here in the Bible. Why? Because God knows the future. As I've said, the future is in his hands. And what is this? The Bible is the word of God. The inerrant word of God. That's amazing, isn't it? That in this book, I think it's amazing, that we can look in the Bible and we can see what is going to happen in the days ahead. In fact, right up until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Truly amazing. And when you look in the word of God, you'll see that Jesus shall raise up and judge everyone who has ever lived. Again, you won't find, you won't get this from a a fortune teller or, or anything like that. But if you turn to John chapter 5 and verse 28 and 29, you can read Jesus saying, 
marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, or the time is coming, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. That is the voice of Jesus. Jesus is talking here about when he comes again, the last day. He will raise everyone up from the grave. Everyone who has ever lived will be raised up. And he goes on to say, and shall come forth, they shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Of necessity. The only way that you, on that day, will be raised up unto the resurrection of life, having done good, instead of being raised up to eternal damnation, having done evil, is if you trust in Jesus as a repentant sinner. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, that's the eternal damnation, but have everlasting life. It's about believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whom God have sent forth into this world to be the sacrifice for sin. Yeah. You, you need to believe in Jesus. There's only one name under heaven given unto men whereby they must be saved. The name of Jesus. And finally, we get to the dream itself. We'll look at Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In his dream, the king saw a great image. The head was of fine gold. We see that in verse 32. Also in verse 32, the chest and arms were of silver. And also in verse 32, the belly and thighs were of bronze. The legs were of iron. We see that in the next verse, verse 33. And also in verse 33, the feet were a mixture of iron and clay. Last of all, a stone that was cut out without hands struck the feet of the image, breaking it into pieces like the chaff of threshing floors. And the wind carried the pieces away. As for the stone that was cut out without hands, it became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. Verse 34 and 35. So we've got that image that's given to us here of that that the king saw in his dream. Last of all, a stone breaking that image to pieces. A stone not made with hands. As for the interpretation of the dream, we're specifically told in verse 38, that Nebuchadnezzar, or the Babylonian Empire, is the head of gold. According to verse 39, as we work our way down the image, if you like, the head is the head of gold, that's Nebuchadnezzar, that's the Babylonian Empire. Then we come down, verse 39, the silver chest and arms, they represent an inferior kingdom that succeeded Babylon. We don't have to, we don't have to play guessing games here. We're told in chapter 5 and 31 that the Medes and the, per- the Persians 
succeeded Babylon. We know that from the Bible, we know that from history, that uh, Babylon was succeeded by the Medes and the Persians. So that Medo-Persia is the, the chest and the arms of silver. Also in verse 39, the bronze belly and thighs represent a third kingdom. Well, Medo-Persia was conquered by Alexander the Great of Greece. Then we come to the fourth kingdom in verse 40, which was represented by legs of iron. That was the Roman Empire that succeeded the Greek Empire. As for the feet made of iron and clay, which is a very weak mixture, you don't have to know anything about material science to, to, to kind of work that one out. Imagine a mixture of iron and clay. It's not going to be very good, is it? it? Not very strong at all. And according to verse 41 and 43, they represent a division of the kingdom, the Roman Empire. And it shall mingle with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. As to what that all means, well, the Bible commentator John Gill, he gave his opinion about the divided kingdom of, um, of um, iron and clay. He said, The Romans shall mix with people of other and many nations that, come, that shall come in among them and unite in setting up kingdoms or these kingdoms set up shall intermarry with each other in order to strengthen their alliances and support their interests. Thus, France, Spain, Portugal and other nations, those of the royal families, marry with each other with such views, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And yet these ties of marriage and of blood shall not cause them to cleave to and abide by one another, but ambition and worldly interest will engage them to take part with each other's enemies or to go to war with one another, to the weakening and hurting each other. And thus the potsherds of the earth will dash one another to pieces. And those who are more powerful, like the iron, will trample the weaker, like miry clay, under their feet. Sounds reasonable. I quoted Gill there because it sounds like a very reasonable uh, interpretation of the what the iron and the clay is all about there that springs from the Roman Empire. Last of all, we come to the meaning of the stone that was cut without hands and that became a great mountain after striking and destroying the image. Now, a big clue as to what that is all about is that it was cut without hands. The stone was cut without hands. In other words, it was not a product of this world. It was not of this world. And also, we see at the end of verse 44 that it shall stand forever. Verse 44 there. Let's have a look at that one. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. So there's no human beings in charge of this kingdom that's been set up. 
but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it, sh- it shall stand forever. A kingdom that is not made with hands shall stand forever. That, dear friends, if you haven't already worked it out, is a reference to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose kingdom shall stand forever. There can be no doubt about that. As it is written in Luke chapter 1 and verse 33, He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Even as I say those words, I think, well, thank God for that. A kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus is forever and ever. And he's, the scepter of his kingdom is a righteous scepter. And he is the king of kings. Not like King Nebuchadnezzar and all these other world leaders. As we finish, let's consider the following. In Daniel chapter 2, Almighty God has revealed to us the rise and fall of various earthly kingdoms, but most of all, he has revealed to us the kingdom of his dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, which began to be set up in the days of the Roman Empire. Like the tiny mustard seed in Matthew chapter 13 that became a tree with birds of the air taking shelter in it. The kingdom of Christ began as a stone not made with hands and has become a great mountain as day by day repentant sinners who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, King Jesus, as their saviour from sin are delivered or rescued by God from the spiritual darkness of slavery to sin and Satan and they are being transferred by God into that everlasting kingdom of his dear son. This revelation from God even comes to us with illustrations. The image and the stone in a recurring dream that God put into the mind of a tyrannical pagan king. All this revelation that we have in Daniel chapter 2 and even a picture of it as we're reading it we can picture the image we can picture the the stone that breaks everything up into tiny pieces and becomes a mountain I still don't know for sure if King Nebuchadnezzar really did forget that nightmare of his or else he just simply wasn't prepared to tell his lying deceiving so-called wise men what it was that he dreamt. Even if the king had told his astrologers and magicians what the dream was, you can be sure that whatever lies they would have concocted, those lies would have had nothing to do with the rise and fall of empires, including the king's empire. And in time to come, the setting up by God of an everlasting heavenly kingdom which, as we have seen, is precisely how future events have unfolded with the rise and the fall of earthly empires and most significantly of all, the growth of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
What do we see now for ourselves? Over two and a half thousand years after Nebuchadnezzar had his dream, what do we see in our day and age? For one thing, you may be aware that the mighty American empire is in free fall, or it appears to be in free fall, and communist China is on the ascent. Also, there have been various other empires that have come and gone, not least of all the British Empire, which at its height was the biggest empire in history. But what is it now? A commonwealth of nations, with nations leaving and coming, joining up again, leaving and joining up, just a loose association of nations. What else do we see in our day and age? sabre-rattling and a continual threat of war and the inevitable deadly consequences as the big nations vie for more land, for power, for world dominance. And they're all a bunch of crooks, just like we see in with the nations of old. However, if you believe that the Son of God made himself of no reputation and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, as your substitute, then praise God because your Saviour has taken his seat above where he rules over heaven and earth and his is a kingdom that cannot fail. As for all of you who are still hanging on to your sin and you still have not bowed the knee to King Jesus, what hope do you have that reaches beyond this morally corrupt world? I tell you the answer, you have no hope. That, and you, when you die, your hope dies with you. Repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour from sin without delay and sing his praises as a child of God and as a citizen of heaven forever and ever. Amen.